Hi, I'm Deborah Hamilton. Welcome to my podcast, Why Do Pets Matter? Ten years ago, with my iPhone and a script, I recorded the first episode of the Ultimate Pet Resolution Summit, which chatted with experts about conflicts over animals. Our conversations were intimate, honest, and illustrated how disagreements over animals occur and how those disagreements can reshape people's lives and relationships. In November 2019, I started Why Do Pets Matter, a new podcast that continued these informative discussions. I'm so excited to have you here with me, continuing my exploration into a more meaningful conversation about why pets matter to all of us. My guests and I will share ideas, stories, and experiences straight from the heart, unscripted and holistic. From the bravest moments to the most brokenhearted, we will explore how to resolve disagreements over animals differently. One thing I know for sure is I want to have more meaningful conversations that will help all of us unlock that deeply felt human-animal bond that drives the emotions of conflict. Today, our guest is Dr. Marty Greer. She's a veterinarian, an attorney, a repro vet, a breeder, and an author. During the pandemic, she wrote the book, Pandemic Puppy, and she started a drive-through vet practice called Checkout Vet. Let's hear what Marty has to say. Hi, it's Deborah Hamilton, and I'm here with Dr. Marty Greer. What a wonderful friend and colleague she is to me. She's not only a veterinarian, but she's an attorney. She is the repro vet of choice for almost everyone in the Midwest and far beyond. And she's a breeder of note of corgis. So this is going to be an outstanding Why Do Pets Matter podcast. She is the CEO of Visionary Vet Village and also Animal Legal resources. And I also want to add that she just started a new practice that's a drive-through vet. So she's going to talk about that at the end. But for now, Marty, thank you so much for coming on. Why do pets matter? Well, I'm so happy to be here. And thanks for including me in your lovely conversations. Why do pets matter? Well, um, personally, I show, raise, and breed both Pembroke Welsh Corgis and Danish Swedish Farm Dogs. So I have two breeds that we have had the great joy of working with and breeding for over 30 years. The Danish Swedish farm dogs are a new addition. They've been with me seven years. The corgis have been here a little over 30. So they are personally my pets. They are lots of fun for breeder, breeding program. And one of the great things about being a breeder is expanding your family. Every time you hand a dog into someone else's life, which you've carefully selected, they become another person in your family. So it's really cool. It's really great uh, to have people that appreciate your dogs, that love your dogs, and that come back to you after another generation of needing another fabulous pet to have. So um, from that perspective, that's what we do. I like showing. I don't love showing my dogs. I kind of do it because... It's a necessary evil, but I don't live to show like um, there are people who do and I admire that, but I'm not one of them. Professionally, of course, it matters to me because we make our living with dogs. There's a tiny percentage of our practice that are cats, but 90% or more of what we do are canines. And because I'm lucky enough to be in a practice that we've developed a breeding po program and a breeding following in, I get to make my living every day helping people bring new puppies into the world, creating great litters, coming up with their genetic plans, 
and bringing new puppies into the world and sending them on their way. So uh, of course we're full service veterinary clinics. So we see them not just cradle to grave, but we actually see them sperm to grave. So we really have fun. I really have the best job in the world. Like I really have the best job in the world because I get to help people live their passion and live their dreams. It's awesome. You know, it's so interesting you said that because everyone who I've spoken to who's worked with you in the repro side of your practice has said that it's been the most wonderful experience because you're as excited as they are. And most breeders are in it for the long haul from the whelping box to the rainbow bridge. And so we do bring these people into our lives, these new puppy owners. We select them uh, from a group of people who want puppies because we we know which puppy, I don't know if you do this, but I'm pretty sure you do. You know which puppy fits with which person you've been speaking to for the past eight weeks. So that's the puppy that goes home. They don't get to pick from the whole litter because they might pick the wild child of Borneo, and they might be an older couple like my husband and I, and, and you really want not to break their hip or something. So you want to give them that quiet puppy. Uh, it's often hard for people to come and say, but I want to pick my own puppy. And and because we are breeders, I have 30 years like you do in a breed. We know what's best for everybody. So I'm so glad you brought that up. I'm so glad you're there for both the breeders to bring these wonderful lives into other people's, you know, sphere. Because every breed and every breed that's new um, brings joy to people. And, and I think that's what probably makes your heart tick really fast is that you know that this puppy is going to bring joy into someone else's life. Yes. And it's, it's awesome. I mean, we absolutely love, and I say we, because the practice isn't me, the practice is everyone that I've surrounded myself with. So I have amazing staff, great doctors, a spouse who completely buys into Oh, I love your spouse. And he's like a vet too. So it's sort of hello. Yeah. So it, it really works. But um, like last year, I got the John Steiner Award, which I'm so excited and so proud of. It's the Practitioner of the Year Award for the Therio Genealogy Group. And I didn't even know I got it because it was during COVID. And so yeah. we didn't have a live meeting. And, and I didn't even know until a week later when I was getting messages from people on LinkedIn. Hey, congratulations. <laughs> what do I do? Like, thanks. But I don't know. And when I found out, I mean, I'm so proud of that because it wasn't just me. It's not just me. I cannot possibly do seven days a week. I can't possibly do the caseload that it requires. I can't possibly do this by myself. The only reason that we have been successful in our practice is because we have surrounded ourselves with great people who also have that passion and that drive. Uh, because otherwise, you, you know, you're going to wear out doing this. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of hours. It's a crazy schedule. But and puppies I, are never born nine to five. It, never. And they never need to be bred on Monday at 10 o'clock in the morning. Yeah. They need to be bred on Easter Sunday or they need to be bred on Sunday night. Or, you know, there's always something that these girls throw a monkey wrench into. So it's not their fault, but it's not a schedule that is an easy one to keep. My dad laughs at me. He's the one who encouraged me to go into veterinary medicine. And he laughs at me when he calls and says, well, so what are you doing on, you know, such and such a day? I'm like, I, I don't really know yet, dad. He's like, oh yes, I forgot for you. Lunch is long range planning. I'm like, yes, yes, it is. Yes, yes. it is. Absolutely. Breakfast is long range planning. And I love when I go to visionary vet village, the amount of information and the videos and the pictures of everybody who is part of your team. I mean, your team there is fabulous. And I think that that's probably makes it 
so wonderful for you because you know when you're there or not there, the same level of care is being given to everyone. Right. And that's not easy to do because like I said, it's a seven day a week practice. So we literally are open every day. We didn't used to be, we tried to resist Sundays and we finally ended up with so many Sunday breedings and then Saturday afternoon breedings that we just finally said, you know, we're just going to staff it. It's just easier. Yeah. So I have staff buy-in and they are absolutely tremendous people that they are willing to work. Now, of course, not everybody works seven days a week, but we are open seven days a week. So with a rotating schedule, we can cover those hours. And yes. it's tremendous. It's a culture of, you know, mentorship and camaraderie and really learning, I think, because everybody's learning every minute of every day what they're going to do next. And everybody, I'm sure, in your practice, even you, um, is available to have questions asked of them and to ask questions. You got it. And we love having vet students come stay with us. So if you have anybody in your life that's a veterinary student that's aspiring to go into any aspect of reproduction, please have them call us. We take two-week externships regularly. I have a new student coming in a week and a half. COVID shut that down, but we're back up and running now. And it is so much fun to have students here because they are bringing new ideas to us and they get to see how it works to be a breeder. It's hard work. It's a lot it's intense. And my breeder clients love veterinary students, too, because they know that that's their future. It is their future. I'm moving to North Carolina. And I have to tell you, the biggest challenge I'm having is finding a veterinarian in Moorhead City, North Carolina, who is breeder friendly. And we had a podcast, um, I think, with another group where we talked about um the relationship between breeders and veterinarians, it should be a no-brainer, but sometimes that really isn't what occurs. The, the veterinarians don't necessarily like to have a conversation with a breeder. And, and because I'm flippant, and you know I am, so I will say this with all love and respect, <laughs> I always say to my vets, you know, how many Irish setter litters have you bred? I just want to know because every litter is different and you really need to listen to the idiosyncrasies that have come in 30 years of breeding Irish setters that will help you help me. Right. Exactly. So a lot of veterinarians don't know much about breeding. Some of them are very willing to learn and really helpful and really interested in working with breeders. And unfortunately, some are not. So it does take some, some of work. that is the breeder's fault, too. So I will raise my hand that we don't necessarily <laughs> communicate in a way that is, you know, uh, we, we sort of get a little uppity. I'm getting better with age. Um, believe it or not, most people get worse with age. I'm getting better with age. And also my practice and mediation, I have better conversations now. But it really is, you know, um, a partnership that really needs to happen. Absolutely. Yeah. So now we have spoken about how things have gotten a little slower, a little different during COVID. However, you didn't slow down. You did two things during COVID that are phenomenal. One is write a book, The Pandemic Puppy, and also create probably the first in the world um, drive through vet practice. So tell us first about Pandemic Puppy, and then we're going to get on to the other wonderful process that is, from what I understand from you, working out beautifully. So Pandemic Puppy, tell me how it started. Well, Pandemic Puppy started when my travel got kiboshed during COVID. Um, I typically travel quite a bit in the spring and the fall for Revival Animal Health, a catalog company that I work for, um, speaking to breeder groups. And because we weren't traveling, I was home on some weekends that I didn't 
normally expect to be home on. So I thought, well, you know, I've got some exam room materials to catch up on. They're kind of outdated. We need to change things. New heartworm preventers have come to market and we've got new ideas about spaying and neutering. And yeah, we vaccinate differently than we did when these materials were written. So instead of kind of patching them together, I'll just rewrite my exam room materials. So I started off with the intention of writing about a 20-page handout. And one day I was talking to Laura Reeves, um, who I do podcasts for and with. And I said, so do you have any uh, publishers that you know that you work with in the dog world? She's like, oh, yeah, I've got the perfect person. So she sent me Denise Flame's name and I contacted Denise. And I initially had the idea of writing a puppy book, but more of a generational ownership book because there are differences in how people obtain and raise and train their dogs when they're um, in a boomer group rather than a millennial group, rather than a Gen Xers. So I initially was going to do that. And she's like, no, 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 no. We're doing this as the pandemic puppy. I'm like, oh, okay. All right. So I started writing and she's like, okay, you need more. You need more of this. You need more of this. You need to write more here. Oh, wait, you need less of this. I'm like, oh, parasites. I forgot. Not everybody. Thinks oh, parasites. So interesting. She's like, you wrote too much about worms and bugs. I'm like, oh, okay, fine. So cut the worms and bugs stuff down, added some things to social, I added some things to technology, added some things to um, separation anxiety and some of the other aspects of things that we really have that are a little bit different now that people have been home with their dogs. And one of the things that we've really noticed is a lot of people that never had a dog as an adult, they may have had a dog as a kid, but never had a dog as an adult. Now they're in their 40s, they've got kids that are in their um, junior high and high school age and the kids are like, come on, mom. You know, you've been telling us all along that we could eventually get a puppy and there's a perfect time to do it now. So we ended up with a bunch of new pet owners that, like I said, were experienced with dogs as far as kids, but had never been totally responsible for the care, raising, selection, all those things of, of a new dog. So I thought it was pretty important that we got people well indoctrinated. So about half of the book is on health and spays and neuters and vaccinations and heart and flea and tick and the medical care. And the other half is on behavior, because I, I also happen to love animal dog behavior and have taken a couple of the VMX and North American Veterinary Conference immersion courses in behavior with some fabulous people like Karen Overall. So I, I've always followed behavior. I've followed Ian Dunbar. I've followed a lot of people over the years and um, just thought that it would be really important that during this time that people were taking in dogs and they may not have a lot of experience and they were going to be home with them all the time, that when they started going back to work and school, and that's the other part of this, that there were people in my ear talking about what's going to happen when everybody goes back and goes back to work and goes back to school and the dogs are now alone. Are they all going to end up back in rescue or in shelters or back at the breeders? How is this all going to happen? So that was sort of this whole coalescence of things. I wasn't traveling. I needed new exam room materials. There wasn't anything current. I, I went home and looked on Amazon one night. I'm like, well, maybe there's some good stuff out there. I, I couldn't find anything. So I contacted Denise and started writing. And by November, we had it published. So uh, she's an amazing publisher, did a tremendous job of putting the materials together in a format that's really beautiful and nice to read and laid out well and the, the cover is fun. It's just it's just a great book. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because the pandemic puppy, I love that you said there's a difference between getting a puppy when you're a kid, when you're a millennial and single, when you're a millennial in a relationship, uh, when you're a boomer and you're getting the dog to fill the space of your kids that left. Uh, it's a whole different way to handle it. And I love that you really address that in the behavior half because 
the health is is one section and, and veterinarians are great about that. Uh, the second part on the behavior, really, there are so many great behaviorists out there and books that they've written. You mentioned too, Karen and Ian, but there are a slew that really tell you what to do. And I myself found that my 10 year old, so it's not just the new puppies, um, we had changed so much because we're home. And I don't know if you found this with your dogs, but my older girl actually became so much more protective of me uh, because I would pull her close when people walk by when we were on our walks. And I never did that before. And now every time somebody walks by, she gets a little, you know, growly because she's protecting me from whatever I showed her to do, you know, and, and these are things we don't even know we're doing but the dogs are picking up on the anxiety, the stress, the fear, whatever it is we had while we were walking and, and follow through on it. Cause she was always the nicest girl in the universe. And now um, she's on a short lead. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It, it did change a lot about how people were. We were seeing dogs more frequently at the beginning of COVID because people would be saying things like, um, yeah, we need to come in with our dog. There's something wrong. So, okay, well, what's going on? And they'd say, well, she's having four stools a day. I'm like, okay, what did she used to do? They said, well, she used to have two. So it took us a few of those visits before we realized that realized. people were going on four walks a day instead of two. So suddenly the dog's schedule changed, their feeding schedule changed, their walking schedule changed, and all their body functions changed. And we had to adapt to, to those kinds of things. So for a short time, we weren't able to see in Wisconsin our regularly scheduled wellness visits. We had to only see pets that were sick, injured, or we were doing time sensitive work as well. Right. So we were doing those things, but it did, it did change how people perceived their dogs, how they lived with their dogs. And we were seeing dogs for things that they normally wouldn't have come in for partly because they were changing their lifestyle, partly because they'd be staring at the dog. They'd be like, there's something's wrong. Yeah. More When you get home from a full day of work, you don't notice anything when you're sitting there all day long with the dog and they roll over wrong. You go, wait a minute, why is he rolling over that way? Yeah, absolutely. It's sort of like my, you know, my feelings about Roxy, that she's definitely different now on a walk. And it might be just that she's old and crotchety like me. So it might just be something as simple as that, but we always attribute it to something else. I love the name of the book. How did you come up with the name of the book? Well, Denise really just named it. Um, You know, we had PPP, the um, the, uh, loans that were being taken out during the pandemic, the but this was the pandemic puppy instead. So um, it wasn't it wasn't particularly difficult. The cover is a riot. We wanted to do something. And so if you haven't seen the cover, I'm not going to tell you what it looks like. You'll have to go look it up on no, Amazon. It'll be the link in the, in the show notes. So we're going to put it there so everybody can see it in the show notes. So I'm not going to tell you what it's what it is, other than to say we wanted it to illustrate the pandemic, but not be too terribly serious about the pandemic, because at that time there were so many political views about it and so many different opinions. And uh, so we wanted to draw attention to it, but not to make it uh, doom and gloom because, you know, there are some people that had a very difficult time and I'm not in any way making light of that, but other people, you know, we, we had a, we had a good year. I, you know, nobody close to us got sick. We were very fortunate that the staff stayed healthy. Um, and during the pandemic, I will say that we, never went to curbside service in our practice. I'm really proud to say that. We did wear masks. We did allow one person at a time into the building. We were careful with disinfecting and all the things. And so the number of people that even got upper respiratory infections went down. 
But my staff were all rock stars during this. Nobody complained. Nobody called in sick because they didn't feel safe. And we were super careful, but everyone stayed healthy. We had a lot of great experiences during the pandemic. And, and still to this point, some of the only social contact that our clients have is with us. They don't go to the grocery store. They don't go shopping at the department stores. They're not going out to eat. They're not going out to the bars. They're home. They're not going to work. They're not going to school. They're home. And we may be the only person that they've talked to in person in two weeks. So um, it, it has changed things there as well. Is It's been a really um, interesting experience to work with people during this challenging time. It is challenging. And I know that I've had a number of people who have been very disappointed in the way in which I think veterinarians absolutely were thrown into the deep end of the pool when the pandemic started, because how do I provide services? Now, you worked it out beautifully. Um, and people always respond to challenges in different ways. And and some didn't necessarily share protocols, you know. Um, so when you got there, you didn't really know what was going on as the pet owner. Uh, everybody was doing things by some, some were doing things by the seat of their pants. So there's a lot of frustration. I'm sure you heard about it, along with the frustration of, you know, well, it's too much trouble. I'm just going to, you know, get rid of my dog and drop it off at the shelter, which I always, because of what I do say, let's think about solutions um, up front. Let's, let's have a vision about what we're going to do with the dogs when people return to work. Um, what can we help them do so that they can keep the dogs? But for you, I'm sure you heard some horror stories from veterinarians where the clients were really crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And people were really frustrated because they didn't have a relationship. Sometimes the veterinary clinics had been sold or there was a new doctor. They didn't have a relationship um, or they ended up at an emergency clinic. And even last week, I still had a client that waited over eight hours to have an appointment at a veterinary clinic at an emergency clinic during the night. She slept in her car all night with puppies so that she could get in. And so it, it's been challenging. It's been difficult. If you don't know the veterinarian or you don't know the veterinary staff, there's been concerns about that um, communication because you're not in the room with them. You, and even with masks on, even in the room, I will say we have lost a certain component of body language, of facial features, of facial expressions. Um, I can't walk in the exam room and shake someone's hand and introduce myself anymore. My clients are now starting to hug again, but they weren't for a long time. And there are times of great joy and times of great sorrow when a hug is the most appropriate thing to do. And I would have them stop. I'd see them lean forward and stop. And then they'd say, what? and I say, no, 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 it's okay. You, you can hug me. It's okay. And they'd be like, oh, because you can just see that they've lost that communication. Yeah. So it's, it's so critical that we return to that. And there are some veterinary clinics and there are definitely going to be some clients that never can recover from the emotional trauma from this. And I feel really bad for that. So we have tried to keep everything as normal as we possibly could. And I think we've done a, a pretty decent job. You know, during a euthanasia or a quality of life discussion, we allow more than one person into the building, but we've been careful. We've wanted to protect the staff, but we've had to be really careful. The other thing that we have to know is that the dogs have changed also because yeah. they now look at these masks and it's changed some of their relationships as well. I've had some dogs come in and very gently tug on the mask and pull it down. I had a puppy yesterday just rip it right off of me. He's like, oh, look at this. Took it right off. I'm like, oh, well, hello. Um, we've had them lick them. We've had them, you know, do all kinds of interesting things. And I, I think that the dogs also recognize that there's been a change. So they can't always see and feel the same emotions because they read our faces much better than you and I think they do. 
Um, I had one dog in obedience at one point that um, I was working with. She was my own, my first corgi. And I was nervous. It was one of my first obedience trials. And she stopped just a little too short of where she was supposed to on a recall. And she saw the look on my face. She saw me swallow hard and she scooted in close enough to make the appropriate recall. And the judge walked around behind me and he said, by the skin of your teeth. And I know that's what she picked up on was how I swallowed. And I'm like, okay, wow. You know, they pick up on such subtle things that we don't even realize. So we put a mask on and now we've really messed them up, especially the dogs that are already fearful. We've really messed with their heads. So we, especially if you have a fearful dog, leaving yourself in the vehicle, having the dog go inside or the cat go inside without you to be their comfort, to be their um, sounding board, to understand what their needs are. And that poor dog going into the clinic without you as their support system is just really not cool. I don't think it's good from a fearful free perspective or from a low stress or whatever type of uh, scenario you want to follow, but it's just not healthy for them. It's not healthy for the cats. So we really have to be aware that everything we've done in veterinary medicine, first of all, everything we do is, is wrong. We walk straight up at them. We look them straight in the eye. You know, we do all the things that you're not supposed to do in, a, in an animal that's fearful. And then we've taken away their human Right. And taking them into a room where they don't know anybody and don't know what's going on and and we can't explain it to them. It's just been a really difficult place for our dogs and cats to be. So we've tried to be really sensitive to that and really aware of it. And I think we've done a good job. I think in general, veterinarians have done a good job, but we have been forced into different situations. And some veterinary clinics simply could not let people inside. We were fortunate we're in a large enough building and have enough space. But I have a colleague in New York City and their, their exam rooms are tiny. Yeah. And so they've had to use two exam rooms for one appointment They'd have, because they're in downtown New York. So they don't even have a place to park their car. They take the subway to the vet. So they can't be outside in January. And so they've had to go in. So they've had one person in an exam room and the doctor in the other room with the pet. And they've had to FaceTime them or do some other kind of telemedicine. Um, so it's, it's been weird. Now, that being said, telemedicine has come into its own and it's cool and it's great. And there are times that it's super appropriate but there are times that it's just not the same as putting your hands on the pet, seeing what's going on and really being able to experience firsthand that relationship that you have with the pet and the pet owner. You know, it's so interesting. You said that because telemedicine is a huge piece and we'll have to have you back to chat about that because you and I both have opinions about telemedicine. Um, I, as a pet owner and you as a veterinarian and an attorney, I as a pet owner and an attorney, because there are things that are worrisome about that. But you know, what's really interesting about what you just said is that even the dogs that weren't fearful at the vet before COVID <clears throat> possibly became fearful at the vet during COVID because of picking up on our body language and, and our, our energy coming out. Because even though my dogs aren't um, fearful at the vet, they love the vet, I was a little bit of a crazy person when nobody came out to see me. So they picked up on that energy. I know you find that hard to believe that I became a crazy person, but I did. Um, and uh, the dogs were like, wait a minute, what's going on? Why are you taking me away from my mother? My mother needs me. She's a little crazy. I need to calm her down. You know, they picked up on that. And so even the dogs in your practice who normally have no issues, you know, going to the vet would likely pick up on the energy of the, of the parent outside in the car. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. There's no question that there were changes. Um, and there were also concerns about handing off the pets in the parking lot. So oh, what's going to happen when the cat jumps out of the arms of the technician or the dog bolts away and 
drop, the leash gets dropped and they take off. There's just been a lot of concerns with those kinds of transactions. Yeah, the liability was huge. I mean, I sat there as an attorney going, oh my God, this is just a nightmare because, you know, not everybody brings their cats and carriers because the cats don't like carriers. And, you know, when you pick the carrier up, I know sometimes the carriers are ancient, so they're not necessarily <laughs> strong. Uh, so I'm just saying that it's not necessarily the safest place to walk them. So that is another piece of this puzzle that you sort of have now done um, a great thing for in that you have a drive through veterinary practice. Tell us a little bit about it. There's a special name that I wanted to surprise everyone. Uh, so you're going to tell us the name. And what does it actually do? Because it seems to be a solution for now and future vet visits. Right. So it's a drive-through veterinary practice for wellness only. It was conceived of seven years ago. So long before COVID, we bought the property about four years ago and we've been working on the design and the property and all the uh, logistics that go with it. So it's drive-through wellness only so they can come and get vaccinations, heartworm testing, that kind of stuff. It's called checkout veterinary. So it is um, four garage bays with the opportunity to expand into another four if necessary or when it's necessary as we grow. And basically people pull into a garage stall, just like a fast oil change. They, we put up the garage door, they drive in, we put the door down, the pet can come out. If it's a cat or a small dog, we can take them into the adjacent exam room where there's a window so that the client can see what's going on in the exam room and the pet can see them if they choose to stay in the garage. Or we have exam tables set up in the uh, garage bay as well. Or for those vehicles that suit themselves to this, you can do the back of a minivan or the back of an SUV, and we can have the pets stay right in their vehicle. And a lot of dogs are much more comfortable in their own vehicle than they are in an exam room. Uh, so they can just have the care taken right there. So it's, uh, and then there's another door that people pull through. So there's no backing up the minivan into the, you know, side of the garage. It's like the oil change. That's great. Or the tire. You yeah. got it. So you drive in, they're glass, big glass doors. Um, we'll have pictures up. Um, so you can pull in, we provide the care, they pay with their credit card, they pull out. So you take their heartworm, their flea and tick preventive, anything that they need with them, the vaccines are given. So we don't do anything that's medically complicated. There's no surgery, there's no x-ray, there's no anesthesia. It's all meant to be outpatient wellness, but it's purely based on convenience. It's not low cost. It's not low touch. We're still doing complete physical exams. We're still doing all the things that we ordinarily would have done uh, at, at a wellness visit. But the coolest thing is that if you have a dog that doesn't really like being there, they don't have to walk through the lobby. They don't have to sit in a little exam room where they get claustrophobic. They don't have to walk back up through the lobby. They don't have all these people coming into the room. They've got this big garage space and this wonderful opportunity for people just to move around. So if you have kids and they're in the car eating McDonald's supper and watching a video, or if you've got grandma with you and she's got Alzheimer's and you're worried that she's going to wander away, or you're just, you, you know, you just don't want to go out in the snow or the rain or the sleet or the cold or the heat or the whatever, you just pull into the garage. You never have to go outside. And we do all the care right there um, in either, like I said, in the, in the vehicle, in the garage bay or in the adjacent exam room, which is set up exactly like it sounds just so that there's a window so you can yeah. see what's going on so if you need to keep one foot in the car and one foot in the exam room you can be basically splitting yourself and keeping an eye on what's going on with both aspects of that so it's really cool um thought of that seven years ago and now with covid it is like the perfect solution yeah i just wish we'd been open at the beginning of covid instead of at the end so yeah it 
it's great. But we've had a super builder and a great experience, wonderful architects that have helped us over the, the course of this process because we've had a evolution of, of architects because of necessity. Uh, and I hired my manager four or five years ago. She used to do wellness clinics in Chicago. So she's been with me um, all this time kind of working through this. And we opened a small animal uh, full service veterinary clinic two miles away so that people that need to have the additional services of dentals or spays or neuters or x-rays or whatever, that they don't have to transfer records back and forth. So everything's under two roofs, but under one ownership. So it's, it's really pretty exciting and really cool. And the clients absolutely love it. Yeah, it seems to me that you really are client focused as well as medicine focused, because first of all, you start at the beginning when, you know, the puppies are being thought about sort of like your practice, you know, your check-in practice or drive-through practice is being thought about. So you get to them before and have that conversation. You help them bring the puppies in and then you provide not only the breeders, but their owners, if they're in the area, a, a wonderful process to get used to having um, to go to a vet and have their dog taken care of. I think it's pretty cool. I think, I think we're really very accommodating. And I think that's really important to clients that they don't feel like they have to fit into our mold. And, and that's kind of where this started is I was at the airport one day and I saw a sign that IBM had up and it said, stop selling what you have, start selling what they want. And that was sort of inspirational to me to say, okay, so in the 50 years since James Harriet, have we really done anything different in veterinary medicine or do we just still do the exact same old things? And we've never looked at the clients and said, what works for, well for them? What, what did they want? How, what's the best way that we can deliver services for them and their pets? And no one's changed anything until yeah. now. And until it's, now, COVID has really created that need for a change or at least that need for a look at a change. And you and I have talked about this um, before and we'll have to have you back to talk about that in telemedicine. The, the that is, you know, people are treating their dogs and cats differently now. So when you probably started veterinary medicine, it was a bit different um, than the veterinary medicine you're practicing now, just based on what we've learned in the past. I'm going to say it. You've probably been a vet for 30 years. So in those 30 years, so much has changed. 40 Oh, stop. Yes. Just 30. Just 30. I know I'm almost 40. I'm almost 40 with law, and I refuse to say that. I keep saying 30. I'd like to say that young. <laughs> but, you know, yeah. when you graduated, things were different, and the way the vet perceived was different, and, and the way the pets were perceived was different, and dog ownership and pet ownership, would everybody was tethered outside. Now, if you tether, you know, you're terrible, and I'm sitting there going, but it's so much better than being hit by a car. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, we didn't even have ultrasound at the vet school. Ultrasound was not in veterinary medicine when we graduated. Yeah. So it's, it's almost hard to believe that there's been that much of a change, but that's the reality is it has been that much of a change. And the ownership desires have changed. So not only has the medicine progressed incredibly both um, through animals on the human side, but for animals because it was, you know, research for the human side and for animals. So the medicine has gotten so much better and the costs have gone up with the medicine. However, you know, it's a, it's a choice you make. I, it's, it's interesting. I read an article today on the internet where a vet, you know, they were talking about when, when clients say, well, if it was your dog, what would you do? And one vet said, well, 
you know, I wouldn't do chemotherapy on my dog because of these underlying issues that they have. And it wouldn't really be helpful for this dog because it's afraid of the vet. It has Addison's, it has something else. So you really need to, you can ask your vet that, but really you have to do what's best for your pet. And I think veterinarians are, for the most part, um, are really responding to the needs and desires of their clients and working on their ability to be less perfectionistic and um, more transparent. I don't know how you feel about that. Yeah, I think that's that's probably true. Now, we've always been really transparent in my practice, but not everybody is. And there was sort of a paternalistic way of practicing medicine for many years, but now it is a more cooperative kind of approach. And part of it is Animal Planet really has brought a whole new aspect of what can be done, done in veterinary medicine into our living rooms. So people may not always want to or be able to do advanced imaging or chemotherapy or really sophisticated surgeries, but at least people know that it's available and they can make well-informed decisions from that. So instead of us just dictating to them what we think they should do, we now have that opportunity for them to see what their choices are and to, to progress that way. So it, it has been a big change in veterinary medicine and it's it's been a lot of fun to see it happen. I know I, you know, I've had dogs since I was, I think, five. And so veterinary medicine was much different then. That was 60 years, well, almost 60 years ago. Uh, But the thing that's, that's interesting to me now is that it's a delicate dance for a veterinarian because some things that can be done are cost prohibitive for some pet owners. And that conversation that you have to have because you want to advise them of what's available, but you want them to understand that you understand that whatever choice they make will be the best choice. Because if you can't afford it, especially now with everybody, not everybody, but most people losing jobs and things like that, there is a limit to what you can do. And no one wants to feel as if they're chintzing, so to speak, on their animal. Right. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. And and many times you have to look at the whole perspective. It's what's right for the pet owner, what's right for the pet. Just because we can keep them alive, it doesn't necessarily mean that that outcome is superior. So, you know, and, and dogs have things that are terrible happen to them. But if a dog loses their vision, they don't feel bad for themselves. They didn't know that they weren't supposed to do that. They don't feel like, oh, well, all my friends can still see. So, you know, I, I feel kind of ripped off. So it's, it's really a difficult place to be because people tend to anthropomorphize, but you have to be really careful that you don't walk too far on either side of that line. So it is a difficult challenge. And every client has a different set of needs. So we are very careful in our practice, as many veterinarians are, to make the treatment plans suitable for the pet, for the client, for the family. You have to look at the whole picture and you can't just make a decision on one little tiny bit of that parameter. You yeah. have to look at the, the whole picture and you really have to give some good counseling. And And counseling is a lot of what veterinarians end up doing. Um, in spite of the fact that we don't really have any training in business or counseling, we end up spending a lot of time doing both. And, you know, that's so funny you say that because business is like the worst. Most of the clients I have who are veterinarians, um, their their business acumen is what's gotten them to a place where they have some conflict. Um, and also their, their people skills. It's not necessarily intuitive. And vet schools have started but have not become really fluid in um, communication skills because it really is such an important piece of veterinary medicine. What you said was perfect. You know, you have to give your client the information they need 
need to make a decision, um, but it has to be information given in a way that's palatable for them that they can understand and they can truly make their own choice. Yep. Yeah. So it is a delicate balance, but it's still the best job in the world because where else do you get to work with dogs every day, make new puppies, work with great people, clients and staff. And, and at the end of every day, you go home. Yeah, you're tired, but man, it's been a rewarding, amazing day. Uh, it's, it's, it is really an amazing career. You know, we have covered so much. I'm so sad that we're done with our 30 minutes, but we've covered so much. We've done the reproductive and the beauty of consulting with people, creating these beautiful puppies, and then having that relationship, whelping box to Rainbow Bridge, both between the breeder and their owners, and you as a breeder and I as a breeder and our owners, and the and the breeder and the veterinarian, which helps them get those puppies. And then, of course, the pandemic puppy book, which will be on the show notes. So you have to go check it out because we all want to know what the cover looks like i of course do know what the cover looks like but i'm not spoiling it either Uh, and then of course the beauty of having thought about the drive-through vet practice um checkout vet which came into fruition maybe not you know initially during covid but now has created this this process that gives people what they want when they have to be outside. So you just are brilliant on so many forms. I want you back for telemedicine because you and I both have opinions about that. Um, And really, we really need to continue this conversation about breeder um, vet relationships, because I know it was Laura who had us on, I believe, to talk about uh, the breeder uh, veterinarian conversation. It is very important. And for those of you who want to adopt dogs understand that every purebred um, national club can affiliate you with rescues of that breed that are well respected and recommended by the national breed club so don't forget to go to the national breed club of your breed and hit their link to the rescues to find a rescue dog purebred dogs need rescuing too and if you're adopt don't shop we get it but then everyone needs to have a choice and i know marty you and i've had long conversations about the ability to choose yes and the predictability of what you're picking out and again i think that's generational so yes there's there's a lot There's a lot to unpack there. So I'm so glad I was here with Dr. Marty Greer, JD, my good friend, and I believe soon to be the president of the American Veterinary Medical Law Association. So she um, is following. I was in 2018. She's now coming up and I will support her in everything she does because we are on the same trajectory of helping people understand why pets matter to them and keeping pets in their lives. So until next time, this is Deborah Hamilton. Why do pets matter? See you soon. The Why Do Pets Matter podcast drops every Thursday and can be found on whichever platform you find your podcast. Subscribe now, invite your friends, and I cannot wait to have you join me in these conversations.